welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and if you'd like to take my hand, we can call out together for a visit from the other side. The other side being, in this instance, the realm of non-fiction. So far, we've spoken exclusively to writers who make up their horrors, but this week we've got a guest who has instead chosen to chronicle the darker, weirder side of the real world, whatever that may be. It's Kate Summerscale. You may know Kate as the author of the best-selling The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, and I remember when that book was everywhere in bookshops and later on TV. Well, Kate is back with her latest offering, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, in which she applies her own brand of narrative-led research to a wholly different kind of mystery. Namely, whether a young woman was really the victim of a poltergeist haunting in 1930s London. The case that Kate lays out ranges from the terrifying to the ridiculous and, and back again. And it goes into some very unusual nooks and crannies of the human experience. If you've got any interest in unexplained phenomena in the evolution of psychology or the cultural history of the interwar years, then this book and hopefully this conversation will prove fascinating. So let's head to suburban London. It's 1930. The newspapers are full of impending war, and the crockery is doing some very worrying things. Let's talk scared. Hi Kate, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you, and where are you speaking to us from? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I'm speaking to you from my sofa in a flat in North London. Very nice. How are things with with the whole pandemic situation? Are you coping with that okay? Have you been able to be creative during it? Yes, it's been not not so bad for me in terms of work and being able to live a normal life. Um, As a writer, I do a lot of working from home anyway, apart from when I'm researching in archives or traveling. And luckily, this year has been more of a Um, researching in books and online and editing a book ready for preparation, the book that we're going to talk about. So it's been a, a, yeah, it's been a a pretty easy time to be at home and to get on with things by myself. Good. I'm glad you're well. Having you as a guest is a bit of a shake up for this show. Um, So you're our first nonfiction author. And though your previous books have covered some pretty macabre topics, You aren't someone who really works in horror per se as a default setting. So before we go any further, are you a fan of of kind of the dark side of literature? Yes, I guess I would say more sort of psychological thrillers and and horror than supernatural on the whole, although this book is about the supernatural. When, yes, when I was a teenager, I had a particular spell of um, obsession with horror films, which I'm I'm slightly more sort of wary now. But uh, but I've I've certainly dabbled in horror as a genre in my time and and gothic fiction. Well, that's good to know, and that will come up again. And it's interesting the, the kind of dichotomy between psychology and supernatural because that's something that comes to the fore very much in your your new book. To kick us off. Your new book is called The Haunting of Alma Fielding. And, you know, what can you tell us about it to to give us a baseline to start from? Well, it's subtitled A True Ghost Story. It is, as you said, a non-fiction account of a woman 
who reported a poltergeist attack in her house in Croydon, South London, in 1938, and a famous ghost hunter called Nandor Fodor became interested in her case, and he investigated it and subsequently wrote a book about his investigations. I read the book and remained curious about many aspects of what had gone on there, and so I decided to conduct my own research and try to both reconstruct the events of 1938 in Alma's house, um, but also possibly reinterpret them. So to contextualise your style and your your kind of approach to to this kind of material, I'd like to talk about narrative non-fiction, because I would say that you are one of the foremost practitioners of narrative non-fiction. But for those of us who may not be familiar with that concept or who may not have encountered it that much, what exactly is it and, and how do you approach that style? Um, well, it's a bit of a mouthful to start with. <laughs> narrative nonfiction sounds a, a, it's a unappealing per se, but I think of what I do as um, as, as storytelling, as historical storytelling. So it's not academic, um, but it is factual, and I choose usually forgotten and obscure stories. Um, which gives me the advantage of the sense of adventure while researching them, a feeling of mystery and and drama. My own research, I don't know what I'm going to find or decide. But it also means that hopefully for the reader, it's not a familiar story. It's not like recounting the life of Winston Churchill or W.B. Yeats or something. It's it's something that um, you don't know where it's going to take you. And in that sense, I, I hope can recreate some of the feeling of reading a novel, some of the sense of um, expectation and suspense. Uh, so that's, and I try to, so often the stories I choose take place over a fairly short period of time, weeks or months, and I can research them in a lot of detail so I can recreate something of what it felt to be alive at at that moment, what it smelt like and looked like and tasted like. And so I I try to bring all that to the story and without ever leaving the factuality of it. I have to all all my atmosphere has to be derived from the records, from sources, but I am looking for atmosphere as well as objective truth-telling. Yeah, I think atmosphere is an interesting word because th- this book is, is full of that. It takes place in the 1930s and the interwar years, and you really get across a sense of the, the time and the culture. How much leeway do you give yourself to embellish or to kind of fill in the narrative gaps? Because when I was reading the book, I was obviously underlining things all over the place, and I, and I find it interesting that the subtitle, as you say, is a true ghost story. Um, And there's a quote that I picked out from the book, and I've got a few of these, by Marjorie Bowen, who was a, you know, a ghostwriter writer in the, if I'm right, in the late Victorian era, who said that the best spooky stories exist on the cusp of fact and fiction. So is that something that you would apply to your book? I'm definitely interested in where those borders are between fact and fiction. Um, I don't, I don't embellish. All the dialogue in my books is drawn from printed or uh, recorded sources. And 
where I speculate about what somebody is feeling or thinking, I make it pretty clear that this is interpretative rather than knowledge. So I, and yet I am aware that by framing the stories in certain ways, by structuring them in certain ways, withholding information, implying things, I'm using the techniques of fiction and participating in a sort of fi- in a fictional novelistic apparatus and using that to tell a non-fiction story. So I'm definitely navigating that border. And I was very interested in the way that ghost stories typically exist on that border. The whole point of ghosts is they're scary because we don't know if they're real or not. Uh, they're scary because they exist in that borderland um, where we don't know whether it's subjective or objective. And to some extent, my books play on the edge of that. What was it then about the study of poltergeists in particular that grabbed you? I wanted to write about a haunting and I started reading around the subject. And um, To begin with, it was mostly late Victorian stories that caught my eye. And I became really intrigued by how much supernatural activity there was in the 1920s and 1930s in Britain. And in particular, poltergeists, these rackety spirits, which were seen as quite sort of common, low-class spooks. Um, The newspapers often wrote disapprovingly of them as if they were gangsters or hoodlums. And, uh, and And I liked the idea of the sort of working class ghosts um, causing havoc and trashing houses and throwing things around. It felt like a, a particularly a sort of modern sensibility and uh, that there, there was a sort of comedy to it, but also a proper anger to it that intrigued me. And I wondered why they flourished in the 1930s, these particular naughty uh, vandal ghosts. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I was kind of taken aback, and I, I've got a background in, in of interest in this stuff, but I, I was a little bit taken aback by just how prevalent poltergeists and hauntings and uncanny events seem to be um, in this time period. Can you give us a bit of a, I keep using the word contextualising, but can, can you give us, give us a bit more information about what was going on in a broader sense with spiritualism and the supernatural in those interwar years? It totally took me by surprise as well. And I came across the story of Alma Fielding and her poltergeist and then started reading further about poltergeists and supernatural research in this period. And it seems uh, what I gather is that um, after the enormous losses of the First World War and the flu pandemic of 1918, seances became big business in Britain. They'd been around since the late late 19th century, but now they gained a real sort of mainstream appeal. There were so many bereaved um, who, I suppose, they not only sought to contact the the dead at the seances, but I imagined that they functioned also as kind of support groups, um, a kind of therapy where the bereaved could gather and speak about those they had lost. Uh, so, and the likes of Arthur Conan Doyle, all kinds of eminent public figures, defended the claims of spiritualism, which were basically that the dead survived in another world and were able to communicate with the living. If only we could find the channels by which we could speak to one another. 
in this context of the seances being all over the country, people increasingly started to report supernatural experiences, visits from ghosts, strange occurrences, levitation, episodes of telepathy. And there were scientific advances at the period that made this seem quite plausible. People were speaking on the telephones, after all, and they were going to the cinema where they could see sort of ghosts <laughs> gliding about the screen. From every angle, from the grief of the war, from excitement about technological change and scientific possibility, and just from a sense of entertainment, the newspapers were full of these stories, some of which were, were sort of funny and shocking. Um, it became a kind of craze. And, uh, and, and by the 30s, a lot of people were making money out of the supernatural. With all of those different things happening, what made you settle on Alma's case and not another? Why not Jeff the Talking Mongoose, for example? <laughs> I was very drawn to Jeff the Talking Mongoose, who was, uh, that was, that's a fabulous story, which Nandor Fodor also investigated, in fact, um, but it was a, a mongoose who supposedly had attached itself to a teenage girl on the Isle of Man and used to scream abuse at her and her family and steal their butter and chocolate. And lots of ghost hunters trooped over to the Isle of Man to try to have a conversation with Jeff, Fodor included, but to no avail. But this story, Alma Fielding's story, it seemed to me a, a sort of catalyst for a new type of thinking about the supernormal, which I was really intrigued by. And that was that it changed. Fodor was already wondering whether supernormal events might have psychological causes. And in this case, he really got his teeth into thinking about that and the theory and how it might be that Alma's poltergeist was actually an emanation of her subconscious. The question that really interests me is, what were your thoughts on poltergeist or all the supernatural going in? And how do they compare to your thoughts now? Going in, I guess I was intrigued but sceptical about the existence of poltergeists and ghosts. And as I got further into the research, I sort of realised that I was less interested, in fact, in whether or not they were real and much more interested in what they expressed about human experience. I've no doubt that supernatural experiences are real, but whether that means that there are objectively spirits or telepathic forces in the world, I don't know. I've seen no evidence of it, but I feel um, that this is a whole unexplored area of a way of getting at um, sort of secret human emotions, especially in historical material, that ghosts can tell stories that aren't in the more conventional histories about what people fear and dream of. So you don't come down either way on whether or not there is a supernatural cause to all this? No, I hope I leave, it, leave that open in the book while trying to find out what human emotional causes there may have been for all this whether those translated into supernatural events or to uh, imagined or performed events is for the reader to, to bring their own experience and belief to bear in, in deciding that, I think. Yeah, and it is, it is a, bit of a, a bit of a twisty book in that regard because there are, there are parts in it where I was, you know, 
utterly convinced that that Alma is is faking this and couldn't see you could see it any other way. And then there are parts where you're like, well, you know, how does that fit in with the the, the, the model I had five minutes ago when something so outlandish happens? You think, well, how, how could that possibly be faked? So it, it does kind of read a little bit, as you said before, a, a bit like a novel where it, it, it winds its way from one end of the spectrum to the other. I ended the book with a, a fairly clear idea on what I thought, and I won't say what that is. But I, yeah, I do feel like, depending on your own sensibility, you could take very different impressions from this. Yes, yes, I hope so. And part of the, um, the, the pleasure of following it for me in my research was that Fodor kept being wrong-footed in terms of what he believed. Like you, he would at one point be convinced that she was faking it, and yet he would feel absolutely sure that there were other moments at which she was genuinely terrified. And then, of course, twisting again, there's the possibility that people who do fake it then get genuinely possessed in a kind of revenge possession um, by the spirits that they've impersonated. That's a very common trope in ghost stories, that the skeptics are the ones who, who get punished and the fraudsters are the ones who get taken over. Yeah, it's one of the things that haunts me about horror movies. So I, I'm terrified of anything to do with possession or demons and stuff like that. I don't believe in any of it, but I that that kind of thing in a film or a book really kind of gets under my skin. And then when you add in the whole layer of, you know, the skeptics are the ones most at risk, it becomes a kind of meta threat. Yes. Yeah, it does. It's slightly unnerving at three in the morning when you just read or, read or watch something horrible. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned the research. Um, and I imagine that was quite a mammoth task. I mean, with as much detail as you like, how did you approach the research this? Where did it start and where did it take you? Research started with me reading Fodor's book about the case, published in 1958, 20 years after the events he described. And that, that took me to, first of all, I had to establish the family's identity because he didn't, uh, he gave pseudonyms to Alma and, and, the, uh, and the rest of her family. Um, having worked out their real names, I then did sort of piece together other aspects of their lives and got in touch with Alma's descendants. And I also followed up some leads to Fodor's papers in psychical research archives in England and found one set of papers in an archive in Cambridge which, to my amazement, included a big folder on Alma's, Alma herself. It had been wrongly labelled as a folder on Mr Fielding. And that was absolutely stuffed with photographs and diagrams and transcripts. So in some ways, having found that folder and another um, transcript that I found in New York called the Poltergeist Diary, which he had compiled. Um, it, there was an almost overwhelming amount of material on the interviews and, and transcripts that he conducted over four months in 1938. So then my task was to select, to see what pet story I wanted to pick out from all this material, which I thought were the pertinent strands and what was the arc of the story that I could see, but also to set it in its time to try to understand what had happened um, by understanding the world in which Alma and Fodor lived. Right, yeah, and that, that I think is one of the book's real strengths, is, is that 
that I've already alluded to it, but that texture of the time and the culture and, you know, the political issues at play. And what I really like, and I've only ever read this and The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, for which you're probably most famous. So I don't know whether this is something you do in all your books, but you you include these nuggets of information and like sort of René Marguerite's exhibition that was on at the time. Or my favourite example is a reference to an Algonon Blackwood story, Chemical. Mm. You kind of drop them in, these nuggets of info, yet you don't draw any overt link between that piece of information and the story that you're telling. So it can be quite jarring at first, but it creates this kind of collage of the time. What, what's your thinking behind that approach? Because it seems quite quite a striking stylistic choice. Well, there's so much that one could say about what was going on in England in 1938. And the nuggets that I pick out to put in the book are those that I hope chime with the story and uh, resonate with it and cast light on it in ways that are provocative and and lead the reader in the same direction that, that I went with my thinking and feeling about the case. But I don't want to... Um, make the links and connections too overt because that would be to uh, force it. It's, they're just there and it, again, there, there's a gap between the events in the story and these nuggets I'm choosing from elsewhere so that the reader can choose to, to make that connection and agree with it and find something meaningful in it or not, or it's just a bit of background colour. So it's a kind of, uh, it's a reluctance to force an interpretation on, on the story or the reader, but to constantly hint at one, to sort of steer in, in, in certain directions without um, st- straining to do so. Right. And I think that is also very evident in your intimations and implications about the possible causes of Alma's poltergeist activity if that poltergeist is born from some kind of psychological trauma you you leave these little again to use that word nuggets or these little breadcrumbs as to what may have possibly caused that without ever really you know settling on one causation and that's great because obviously the, the, you, you want this to be some mystery left at the end of this so you don't want a closed case you want the mystery so so that's great again i have my opinions but you know we'll see what other people think But one of the things that does emerge all the time and that I found really fascinating was this sexualization of the the supernatural experience and in particular the relationship between Alma and and Fodor. Is it Fodor? Fodor? How do you pronounce it? I say Fodor, but your guess is as good as mine. Right. So, yeah, there's this sexualized frisson between them. Again, is that something that you have picked up from in his notes or in the primary sources, or is that something that you are narrativizing to give the, the book shape? I think it's pretty evident in the in the notes and transcripts and the descriptions of the events that took place. There's a lot of um, licensed touching that can go on in a supernatural investigation, as in a seance. And the sense of li- liberation from the normal rules of the 1930s society in which they found themselves both as married people is it's definitely present and um, I I think generally a lot of the psychical research had that kind of feeling of of heady disengagement from the rules of the world the sort of otherworldly can also lead to a, a, a sort of freedom 
um, which was palpable in some of the descriptions of the seances and, uh, and the conversations between Fodor and Alma. So I think, and it, but it began to take on what started, I think, as something lightly erotic, a kind of flirtation in which she enjoyed the attention and Fodor enjoyed the access to this attractive, mysterious young woman, began to take on some rather more sinister, creepier undertones as the investigation progressed and it became almost sadomasochistic in quality, the way that Fodor was very intrusive, the surveillance was very intense and slightly hostile as he became suspicious that she might be committing fraud. So the, everything became heightened, but in uh, a, a rather aggressive way. So the, the flavor of it changed o- over the course of the investigation. But I think there was always a, a fierce kind of intimacy between them. And both of them had staked so much on this. Um, it, Fodor in particular was, was sort of risking his reputation by following the the investigation of Alma and his hunches about what really lay behind her haunting, which was uh, his theories were not very popular with the spiritualists who were his colleagues at the Institute. I'm glad that you said it, it takes on sinister overtones. That's how I read it as well. And it, it, it does in part start to read a little bit like a gothic kind of thriller with that classic dynamic between sort of a deeply sensitive woman and a kind of seductive but quasi-abusive patriarchal figure. I, I was going to ask, was that some, was that intentional on your part? But it sounds more and more like you do not shape this narrative. You allow the narrative to shape itself. But do you uh, see that that those kind of gothic overtones as well? Yes, I did. I did see those emerging, and um, and I it was only by sort of re- taking researching for a long time that I that I got that sense of the investigation changing in the course of those months as Fodor became more desperate to secure evidence either of her authenticity or of her fraud. And as Alma became more frightened by the, the um, anger and suspicion that she was arousing and more intent on proving herself and not being returned to her humdrum suburban life, it, the life that she was enjoying as an experimental subject at the Institute was both stressful and alarming and exciting so I, th- I think that I d- detected those things emerging and then chose to foreground them in some ways in telling the story but to Fodor's um, in Fodor's defense I think he was um, he hoped that Alma was for real he didn't wish to persecute her he wished to champion her and he himself became distressed at various points by the ways in which he was turning into a persecutory figure. And I think his own sort of anger and persistence sometimes alarmed him too. So they're not kind of cartoon characters of this man emerging as some controlling monster. He, he was troubled by, by the turn that the investigation took as well. And later, referred back to it and said he regretted using women like Alma as guinea pigs. Do you see him as the hero or the villain of the piece? Because I couldn't work out what your take on this man was. He's quite an enigmatic figure who has links to all kinds of prominent figures. I mean, he's friends with Bela Lugosi, which is a 
you know, a nice little <laughs> Easter egg for, for horror and gothic fans. Um, yes. What's your take on the man? Do you think he's someone that, you know, to be celebrated or someone to be looked upon with some with suspicion? I, I'm, I would tend to the celebrated side of it while also uh, acknowledging um, that he sort of behaved in ways that were, were quite rough and bad in the course of the investigation. But I think he was brave in the, in the ideas that he came up with, imaginative, and for the most part, um, appreciative and thoughtful of, of the mediums he worked with. He didn't seek to expose them or demean them, but and sometimes regretfully found himself doing so. So I don't think he was a man who liked to humiliate others. And I think he was a pioneer, even if some of his ideas were, were a little bit um, off the wall. And, um, and he was constantly sort of questing, open-minded, uh, sympathetic to other people's suffering. So I was very interested in him. And I saw him also as a bit of a victim and outsider at the institute where he worked. Uh, because he was a Jewish-Hungarian emigre, so not part of the British's establishment. He was regarded with some hostility and suspicion himself in the same way that, that Alma was. I think there were things that linked them. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think he was the person who kind of took spiritualism from its creaky background and, and turned it into psychology? Was he somebody with the person most responsible for that? Well, this particular case does, to, to me, feel as if it was some uh, pivotal moment in taking apparently supernatural events and treating them as uh, as primarily psychological events. I don't think that's really compatible with spiritualism at all, because the spiritualist uh, creed is founded on, on the idea that ghosts are the spirits of the dead, not emanations from the living. So this is why he fell out so badly with the institute he worked for, which was mainly populated by spiritualists. Uh, so he was uh, he was a sort of very modern psychical researcher, and um, he uh, d- departed from the, the the more spiritualistic interpretations of ghosts and came up with something quite different. And it, as it happened he was uh, able to meet Freud just before he left England in 1938 and a year before Freud's death and Freud um, endorsed his uh, speculations about Alma's poltergeist and the source of poltergeists in in general so that seemed quite a neat emblem to me of the way that that this transition had been made from the séance to the psychoanalytic couch, in effect. It's quite a lovely thing, that meeting with Freud late in the, in the book, because it almost reads like a novelistic ending. It's kind of a slightly triumphant, a quietly triumphant moment for this man mm-hmm. who has been had a rough time of it. So, Well, yes, he was, um, when he got Freud to read his study of Alma Fielding and got a letter back from Freud, he he had by, by this stage been expelled from the International Institute for his outrageous ideas about repressed sex and the supernatural. And so he made a copy of Freud's letter, he said, and sent it to the Institute that had sacked him without any covering letter or comment. It was his, you know, his moment of, uh, of vindication. 
sort of mic drop moment. That's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is interesting, though, is that Fodor is described several times as a kind of mentor to Alma. And I, I find that quite an odd concept because these days we think of supernatural phenomenon as a kind of binary state. Either it's real or it's fake, or at very least it's real or it's a uh, misinterpretation. Whereas in, in, in this context, it's more like it's something that can be teased out of someone or can be developed or turned from almost from the fake into the real it seems quite odd now, but you know, is that something that that was that was standard to think of it as developing a medium? Yes, apparently so. This was surprising to me too because I had thought that in in more binary terms, and and researching this book did sort of make me rethink that because the um, researchers of this period they fully accepted that a lot of mediums were psychologically damaged um, fragile individuals and so they would both experience real supernatural possessions or uh, be occupied by the spirits of the dead but also they would want to please their, their observers and they would fake things they would make things up they would embellish or elaborate and so these things were not contradictory it was assumed that there would be a a kind of spectrum of behavior in a psychic person which went everything from true possession to out and out fakery and that they these things were not contradictory the important thing was for a researcher and or a ghost hunter to be able to pick out the real from from the not real in in the things that a psychic reported or seemed able to do i mean in the context of i keep i've never used the word context so i'm watching one one chat in my life (laughs) but again in the context of what emerges in the book and what we find out about alma and her past potentially it's almost like you could read fordo's development of her as a medium as kind of analogous with therapy in that you know it's like um whether it, whether what's happening to her is real or not, it's kind of a reaching for catharsis, reaching for some kind of extreme outpouring of of, of trauma and tension. Do you do you agree? Yes, I did feel as if it increasingly became like psychotherapy. What what she was undergoing at the institute, um, as he he put her under a hypnosis, he got psychologists in. There were word association tests, and he um, consulted with a psychoanalyst who had some really interesting theories of trauma and the fragmented self and how psychic individuals were often traumatized and had multiple personalities. So the whole thing slid slid right over into this other developing sphere of psychoanalysis, which was at the time a suspect science, just like psychical research. And, um, and, And what was... Alma was undergoing was somewhere between a development of her as a medium and a sort of um, treatment of her as a, as a damaged individual. Mm. Yeah, it's quite it's quite a sad st- tale in many ways. But you mentioned before that it's also quite funny. And <laughs> I, I was quite surprised by before you use the word heightened, and, and it, it almost does feel like everyone's off on a big lark a lot of the time. It gets serious as it goes along as she starts to confront these things. But it starts off as kind of like a bit of a lark, a bit of a, you know, a, a fun project they're all part of. Just the sheer oddity of things that happen. 
like some of the things that Alma begins to like manifest about her person, like you know, there's birds and there's ancient relics. And at one point, I think there's even a tortoise that kind of turns up. <laughs> it gets almost silly at parts. I, I was quite taken aback by that. Yeah, so it seemed um, so some of the, the juxtapositions of the sort of exotic and the banal are hilarious sometimes. And all the, she, can, she does psychic shoplifting at the Bogner branch of Woolies. And, and, they, and they never take him back. <laughs> no, they don't. Fodor was quite alarmed because he realised they have spirited a ring out of Woolies. He he sort of he's too interested in preserving it as evidence of Alma's supernatural powers to even consider returning it to the shop. And the stuff that the poltergeist does in her in her home, it's all like throwing cups of tea around or bovril or smashing. Bakelite clocks. There's a lot of kind of period detail in the in the things that get thrown about. Cold cream and uh, it's it's very um, like light in a way. And as you say, there's something that's very close to kind of larks, pranks, a playfulness, and a sort of. Sometimes Fodor accuses Alma of mischief, meaning fraud. But you sense there's something, he is himself quite a mischievous character and he tricks her in order to test her. So the whole thing becomes a bit of a, a power play, come flirtation, come game, where, where there's a lot of teasing and playing and light deception. And, and yes, it is, um, it's like a massive entertainment. And I, I did wonder about how, Wonderfully distracting it all might have been at a time of great national anxiety, because uh, by 1938 everyone was extremely worried about the possibility or or probability of, of war, of another world war, and people could still remember the last one. Mm, two things from that: one, the period details. Absolutely, I love that stuff. I love that it's the most English haunting ever. It's, yes. it's all, like you say, it's Bovril and it's things like that. And it, it's almost like if it was going to be a film, it'd be made by Mike Lee, you know, um, or Ken Loach. It's a kind of kitchen sink haunting. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, compared to like Amityville Horror or something that's quite grandiose, um, mm. it's something I quite like. There's something that makes me smile about the very Britishness of it all. On a more serious note, you, you mentioned, you know, the impending war and the kind of anxiety and, and to stay with the psychoanalytic metaphor the book seems to suggest that on a on a broader community scale that poltergeist activity in that time increases in parallel with society's kind of generalized anxiety and you include like a really interesting quote from george orwell which he says fear we swim in it it's our element everyone that isn't scared stiff of losing his job is scared stiff of war or fascism or communism or something so this is a big question, but that really echoes today with Trump and COVID and the rise of extremism and stuff like that. Do you predict that poltergeists are going to make a reappearance or something <laughs> like them? Well, I did um, do a little bit of research about whether there has been a rise in supernormal activity. And uh, the New York Times reported earlier this year that during the COVID lockdown in America, um, one paranormal researcher, a ghost hunter, said that reports of hauntings in houses, uh, poltergeist activity in effect, like rattling doorknobs and 
objects disappearing had rocketed. Um, and it seems, it, it seems right. It seems like these are jittery times. And in, um, and if you're confined in a domestic space in a jittery time, that that domestic space can start to seem like it's got pockets of, of danger, malevolence and oddity in it. And so I think, I mean, certainly the night, late 1930s, I was alerted to this connection between the national fear and the private domestic poltergeist activity by seeing the original front page of the Sunday pictorial where Alma Fielding's poltergeist was reported. And the headlines seemed to come out of Hitler's mouth because there was a huge cutout of Adolf Hitler on the same page. And it was like a big clue to me. There's Hitler, here's a poltergeist haunting a house. And in fact, a lot of the poltergeist um, activity in terms of shaking buildings and noises, you know, there were always bangings and things flying, could be construed as an anticipation of the air raids for which everyone was preparing at the time. And there were lots of, lots of preparations being made for the anticipated bombing of London. And in a way, the poltergeists were playing out that fear um, I don't think that's all that they were about, uh, but I, th- I think that Alma's poltergeist, whatever it was, issued from her private circumstances. But I'm very interested in the way that, that the private can intersect with um, national moods and suppress national anxieties, which is something that Fodor couldn't concentrate on being so close up, but from a distance, it looks as if to looks to me as if these poltergeists um, was was something wider, part of a wider social fear than than just private experiences in childhood. Yeah, that's fascinating about the the air raids. I'd never thought about that. The, it's, yeah, it's almost like I mean, it's a German word, so you know, it's almost yes. um, as if it's the vanguard of the invasion, really. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah, what a strange concept. There is one section late in the book. There's a bit of a fist pump moment for for like lovers of horror fiction like me, uh, where you, you you mentioned that Fodor was invited to consult on Robert Wise's filming of the haunting of Hill House. Yes. Now I that's for me it's one of the greatest ghost horror films ever made, and and all the way through I'd been picturing him as kind of Doctor Montague played by <laughs> Richard Johnson in the film. I've been pitching, anyway, it looks nothing like that. That's how I'd seen him. Clearly, it's in the back of my mind. You know, for the benefits of our um, horror readers, you make some interesting points about the the legacy of this kind of case and how it feed, fed into later 20th century horror writing um, and horror fiction. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yes, I just, it's, um, I only discovered really when I went to meet Fodor's daughter, who's still alive and living in Manhattan, that, um, he had served as a consultant on the MGM production of Shirley Jackson's novel. And he wrote to Shirley Jackson saying, had she read his books because he suspected that she had, because the ideas in The Haunting of Hill House seemed derived from his ideas about poltergeist activity and um yeah she confirmed she had so i was very pleased by that as well because i had seen a connection between the psychological horror of the late 20th century and the kind of ideas that um fodor developed 
and um, in his practice. So uh, that it's sort of about the 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 haunting of Hill House, and then later stories like Don't Look Now and Stephen King's Carrie and The Shining, and Jennifer Kent's film The Babadook, which I watched recently. They they derive their charge from the idea that repressed feelings can generate supernatural events um, or the delusion of supernatural events. And, um, and I think that's a, there's a direct line of inheritance uh, to the way that, that Fodor adapted Freudian ideas to thinking about the supernatural. And I, so I think a lot, of, a lot of that particular vein of horror um, can, be, can be traced back to Fodor and this particular transformational case. When I was studying Gothic and horror, you know, we continually talk about Freudian readings of this and, and psychoanalytical readings of that. And I think it would be very interesting for a lot of my, my ex-academic peers in, in the Gothic and in horror to read this book and, and see it as kind of the missing link almost between Freud's theories and the later supernatural application of those theories. It is that pivot in the middle of them almost i really yeah. enjoyed that that brief case history that you did and it's an interesting it's interesting that it's a pivot that deals with factual events i was very drawn to this idea of writing a true ghost story so even though the interpretation might be um a, a sort of psychoanalytic and freudian that the the, the woman, the original story, was not a fictional one like Carrie and the haunting of Hill House and all the rest of it. So it sort of places it, the whole way of thinking firmly, if well, firmly uneasily <laughs> in the real world, in real experience. You've mentioned a few times that you set out to research a, a ghost story, a haunting. Um, have, have you picked your next project yet? And would you, ever, would you ever take on another supernatural or unexplained case? Or have they scratched that itch for you? I think I, I would. Um, I think of this particular sort of form of, uh, of supernatural case study. Um, I've, I've thought about enough for now. But um, I just I always love mysteries as as ways of um, spurring on my research. And whether those are mysteries about murders or about ghosts or about delusion it's uh, yeah I'm, I'm always drawn to things that that are weird and, and not immediately explicable and seem not to have been explained in the in the published records so I, I i may well return to it in but would be from a very different angle i think sure are you aware of colin dickey's ghostland no a book that came out a few years ago he is a, a researcher like yourself into the phenomenon of the unexplained and he wrote a book called ghostland uh, and then he's got a new one that's out a few few weeks ago called unidentified and that they're both about why we like to believe these things why we need them in our lives why we crave mystery mm -hmm. um, and it, it feels like a really neat match with the haunting of alma fielding but from an american perspective mm, i'd love love to read those yeah. yeah, they are. They are great. And there's a there's a sort of contradictory thing that although I always I, li I like a mystery to to spur me into research, I need the the drama and momentum of trying to find things out, figure things out. I also never quite want to solve the mystery. It doesn't seem fair to to a reader 
to the subject either. I don't want to like explain away a person's experience by ascribing it to one particular explanation. There's a sort of paradox there of wanting to solve a mystery and yet um, also things always remain more, more interesting if, if there's a, a degree of openness and a degree of possibility is left there and you don't close down those possibilities for, either for a reader or indeed um, for a historical character. You let them still have their mystery and, um, and the, their pr- the private life that you can, can never access. Yeah, and I think this is a a much better book for not having a closed conclusion. So I, I, I'm fully on board with with that as well. To finish off, are you happy to answer my very quick four questions about my rapid fire questions, as I, as I call them? Yes. Are they uh, rapid fire responses as well? No, no, take as long as you want. But I, I'm, I'm going to ask you, you know, and I basically I want your your first person that comes to mind. Think of it as yes. like a word association thing like Alma went through, basically. Okay. <laughs> Question one, what was your gateway drug to horror, so to speak? The first things I remember being really scared by, fictional things, were not books, but um, films that I caught by mistake on television late at night. So I remember seeing an old um, Fall of the House of Usher when I was about, I don't know, eight years old or something, a black and white film. And it was all the more terrifying for not knowing kind of what it was, not having any context for it and not being able to look away. <laughs> and then I saw a very creepy um, film about the about Abba Fan, the mining disaster. I still have no idea what it was that I saw. I've tried to look it up and I can't work it out. But there were children eerily dancing on a clifftop and that was incredibly sad and, and, and terrible. And again, I caught it on late night television this time in a foreign country I think I was in France on holiday and so I couldn't understand the the language but I understood it was very very frightening so those um (laughs) unexplained snippets uh are the are the the earliest things that frightened me yeah I've I've never heard of the Abba fan thing I'll have to look into that if anyone listening Mm. knows what that may be please let us know question two if you could recommend one book to our listeners what would it be and why the Turn of the Screw by Henry James. I find that a really um, beautiful and terrifying novel. It's very slight and it all hinges on whether the narrator is um, deranged or, or haunted. And it's the uncertainty that makes it so scary. And so it's a very um, intense and creepy read. There's a weird connective thing between that and... Shirley Jackson, that have you seen the thing on Netflix, the, the TV show, The Haunting of Hill House? I haven't actually, no. Is it recommended? It's incredibly recommended. It's a, the reason I ask it is because the, the sequel series they've made, it's an entirely different story with the same cast, is The Haunting of Blind Manor. So they're retelling Turn of the Screw. Right, right. And they're both modernised versions where the, the basic story kind of um, infrastructure is there, but in a, in a modern setting. It's the scariest thing I've seen for many a year. Oh, okay. That sounds right up my street. Sounds yeah. great. They're fabulous. Yeah. Question three. What advice do you have for a fledgling writer of your genre or any other? I, I think in the, the genre of the sort of supernatural or psychological horror, 
I think the key thing, as in the turn of the screw, is uncertainty. It's the scary thing is not knowing. I think that um, being being wrong-footed, being uncertain about what's real and what isn't real is is the is the really scary thing. And the the most skillful writers can perpetuate that in all kinds of unexpected ways. Thanks very much. I'm making a post note of all of these seats to inspire me as, as I try and write my book. <laughs> and my last question, my favourite question, what truly scares you? I think what truly scares me is, is madness. It's people. It's people going mad and being monstrous. So it's not monsters from the outside. It's um, from the inside. And I've, I've always been Yes, terrified by those stories where apparently normal people suddenly emerge as uh, as insane and, and malevolent. Right. I love asking the people that question. I get a different answer every week. It's my, <laughs> my favourite question to ask people. Kate, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for such a fascinating book and for such insightful answers. I really do appreciate it. This book is out on the 1st of October, um, which is tomorrow at the day of recording, but will be a few weeks back once this goes live. I really cannot recommend it enough for anyone who's got any interest in history or in the supernatural or in psychology or who just wants a good read that it will go in unexpected directions for now kate thank you for talking scared thank you well i hope you enjoyed that non-fiction palate cleanser this won't be the last time that we delve into real world horror for example, I'll soon be speaking to Colin Dickey about the two books that I recommended to Kate. But Kate was the best possible person to start with. The Haunting of Alma Fielding is brilliant. If you ever thought that history was boring, and shame on you if you do, then trust me, all you need to do is inject a poltergeist or two and things liven up sharpish. I'm still not sure what I believe after reading Kate's book. There was definitely some mischief involved in the case, but it takes almost as big a leap of faith to think that Alma could have faked everything as it does to believe in the poltergeist itself. Who knows? I'd love to hear what you think once you've read the book. And do tell me, has anything spooky ever happened to you? If we get some good stories, I, I may tell them on air. As an aside, I've tried my best to identify the film that Kate mentioned about Abba Fan, but I can't find anything that looks likely if you've got any idea what that film may be, then let me know and I'll pass it on to her. So apologies if I sound a bit knackered this week. Who knew that getting a new puppy would be tiring? <laughs> no one told me. If you haven't seen a picture of Ted, podcast mascot and all-round best boy, then visit us on Twitter at TalkScaredPod for all the cute that you can handle. If you want to contact me by email, then it's TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I've had a few listener emails now, and it's it's really gratifying to hear what listeners think. I'm doing this just out of love for the genre, out of excitement to speak to some of my heroes, and out of sheer delight at sharing the conversation with you. So it is great to hear that you're listening. Anyway, I'll be back next week, um, hopefully a bit more alive. My guest will be the author of a book that's already been earmarked as a, inverted commas, must-read for 2021, and it's a claim that is well worthwhile. We'll be talking queer gothic, metafiction and more and if you know your upcoming horror then you may already have an idea who that guest will be. But until then, secure the teacups, 
put down the ectoplasm, don't break the circle, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. 